9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Also here in New York City, uh, but in Brooklyn, we have Ryan Goodman, our uh, regular co-host. Hi, Ryan. How are you? Hi, David. Okay. And we have joining us from in and around the nation's capital, special guest, Congressman Jamie Raskin, who represents Maryland's 8th District. Thank you for joining us again, Congressman. Thank you for having me, David. And also from Maryland's 8th Congressional District, uh, from the Brookings Institution and a practicing uh, physician, Dr. Kavita Patel. Hi, Kavita. Hi there, David. Thanks for having me again. And from somewhere in Washington, D.C. that looks extremely posh, we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Great to be here. So we're going to talk about the crisis of the moment, but I thought to kick it off, uh, we need to deal with the news. Uh, And of course, there is a breaking news item uh, the afternoon we're recording this, uh, which has to do with the Justice Department's decision um, not to or to drop charges against uh, General Michael Flynn, who was briefly the National Security Advisor for the president. And I thought, why don't we start out with Ed posing a question to the congressman? Thanks, David. Uh, congressman, good, good to see you uh, on here. Um, you are actually the closest thing I have to a congressman because I live in, in the District of Columbia. But I think you're the nearest oh. congressman. So you're my honorary congressman. Uh, if, if I may, let me ask you about Attorney General Barr's decision to drop all the criminal charges against General Flynn. Um, I, I, I think I can probably guess what your reaction is to that decision. My, my question is, what do you think this might portend about what Bill Barr is capable of doing or willing to do on behalf of Trump um, in the lead up to the election in November? Well, that's the right question, Ed. Um, I mean, it's obviously completely scandalous and outrageous um, to have uh, a federal felon who's already pled guilty to um, material false statement charges um, to be freed uh, for completely political and ideological reasons. But, um, you know, Barr is attempting to... um, completely politicized the Department of Justice. And where is he headed? I don't know. Um, Trump would obviously like to uh, pass a get-out-of-jail-free card to anybody who got swept up um, in the Mueller investigation and anyone uh, whose crimes uh, revealed even a portion of uh, the deceit and corruption of the 2016 election. Uh, the, the thing that they might do, which, of course, is um, another obsession of Donald Trump's, is to go after Obama people and to begin fabricating charges against people from the Obama administration. I mean, the, the game is, of course, deflection and distraction. Um, do you mind if I ask a, fo- a follow-up question? I don't know how you can help yourself. 
Uh, it's it's yes exactly it's it, it's in I'm capable of avoiding it. Um, when you say follow up with Obama people, and this isn't just exculpating in their eyes people involved um, or indicted or imprisoned under the Mueller investigate in the course of the Mueller investigation, it's also retaliating against those who are on the other side. What what sort of targets are you worried about? Well, <clears throat> I mean, I saw this happen when we. Um, tried to look into the Mueller report and to pierce the thick fog of propaganda that Barr sent out to the country during that three and a half week period when he confiscated the report and then uh, serially misstated its contents to the public, prompting not one but two letters of protest from Mueller saying you're pulling the wool over everybody's eyes. And, you know, and that's where we end up with the nonsensical and false mantra of, um, no collusion, no conspiracy, you know, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, um, during that period, uh, Jim Jordan and the gang um, spent the whole time talking about the deep state conspiracy. Um, And, you know, by which they meant like a couple of of vaguely critical phrases coming from FBI agents toward the president. that was the whole basis of their stupid, paranoid, deep state conspiracy theory. But I think they'll go right back there because that is the ideological fantasy that they're inhabiting. Thank you. Thank you for that. And we may pick up with that again at the end. Uh, But let's go to a round of questions uh, again, starting with the congressman and then opening it up uh, uh, about where we stand in the COVID crisis. And let me turn to you, Kavita, provided you have not been too unsettled by the congressman's assertion that they're going to start going after former Obama officials. Yeah. Since you're a former, you're a former Obama official and you could be in the crosshairs. I, I, I don't look good in an orange jumpsuit, so I'm hoping that that'll keep me away. But Representative Raskin, thank you so much. And, and uh, I just want to say as a physician, who is in your district, this is uh, an incredibly important to ha- time to have leaders like you in Congress. Having said that, we have seen on so many levels kind of a failure of national leadership. And now with the president denying or at least kind of mitigating even the deaths that have occurred due to COVID-19, as well as very direct quotes around the need for testing, we have enough tests, we don't need this many tests, as well as all the statements that we could compile, it feels uh, like we have a bit of a choice that we're having to make as Americans, recover the economy or stay healthy, or at least try to stay healthy. And many of us, myself included, feel like this is a false dichotomy. Can you talk, Representative, about just your thoughts about not only how we can safely reopen the country, but that the, you know, the pit that we're being stuck in around deciding whether our health is more important or whether economic security? Thank you, Kavita. Uh, it's an honor to represent you. And um, I'm so grateful for all of the terrific work you've been doing. It's obviously a false choice. It's a totally um, counterfeit ideological choice that's being presented to us. I mean, um, any economist worth his or her salt will tell you that the best way to revive the economy is to beat the virus 
and uh, transform the public health situation. It's the only way to get the economy going again. Otherwise, we're going to be stuck doing $2 trillion bailouts every six or eight weeks of the economy because people are going to be too terrified to leave their homes. I mean, that's the bottom line. Um, you know, the effort of, uh, you know, Fox News and uh, right-wing politicians and the white supremacists to say all you need to do is to get these governors, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, to repeal their executive orders is ridiculous um, because the, the majority of people understand exactly how dangerous it is. We've lost more people in the COVID-19 crisis than we lost already. You know, in three months of this, we've lost more people than we lost in the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, and the Afghan War on the American side of those wars. Um, and um, it's spiraling out of control. So um, your point is right about testing. You know, there, there's a reason. It's not just the normal incompetence and malice of the Trump administration that's operating here with respect to the testing. They don't want testing because they don't want the numbers being reported about how the disease remains out of control. And at least outside of New York State, continues to spiral upward. They are not even complying with the totally flabby criteria that Donald Trump sent out as their reopening guidelines a few weeks ago um, to the states. I mean, that, that's what passes for their reopening plan. It's no plan. It doesn't mention the federal government. It doesn't talk about the national government's role in mobilizing production of the PPEs, of the masks, of the gowns, of the ventilators. It doesn't talk about the federal government approving state reopening plans based on the state of the disease in the state and then also what the state's plan is for public health moving forward. That's what a real plan looks like. We've introduced one. It's called the Reopen America Act. We've got, I think, 75 or 80 co-sponsors um, at this point, but the Republicans show no interest in it. I mean, it's the damnedest thing I've ever seen. They, they really think that just by changing the subject, they're going to get the whole country to forget that we've lost 70,000 Americans and 1.2 million people have the disease and everybody's in danger. What's going on in these meatpacking plants out in South, South Dakota and Nebraska is extraordinary. The president uses his defense logistics um, authority not to mobilize production of the health equipment we need, but to keep the meat processing going to keep the meat packers going, then they're compelling workers to go back to work under unsafe conditions. The workers sued, and yesterday there was a decision in the Western District of Missouri by a judge whose courthouse is closed in Missouri because it's too dangerous. He's operating from home, and he issues a decision saying that, um, well, this is going to be okay. The employees should essentially trust the employers here, and uh, they've not been able to show any uh, irreparable harm threatened, even though they're saying, well, we could die where this is, where it's threatening serious illness or death. And the judge says that is not irreparable harm within the meaning of our uh, eighth, eighth Circuit uh, preliminary injunction standards. So, I mean, this is the situation we're in right now. When death is not irreparable harm, you know, we've entered into a very dark, dark place. Ryan, next question. Um, so also, uh, Representative Rapskin, just wanted to thank you for your leadership on these issues and take up from one of the points that you just made, which is the Reopen America Act, which you've uh, co-sponsored. 
And I saw you recently talk about some features of the act, uh, like the provision that would let the federal government allocate resources to state once they've met certain scientific-based criteria showing that they're ready to reopen. And one of the pieces that it brought to my mind was it actually exposes how much more the federal government could be doing right now. Um, and I thought it might be helpful to have you talk about that with respect to what I see is the president is trying to pivot. He's not running a public health effort. He's running more of a public messaging effort. And he's trying to shift the responsibility and the blame to the governors. But there's so much more that he and the federal government could be doing to stop Governor Kent from prematurely opening up the Georgia economy and exposing people to a much worse public health threat like what's already kind of embedded in the Reopen America Act, but he has some of those powers. I think it might be helpful to our listeners to, for you to describe why it's not like the president is powerless in this moment. Mm. And then what happens in Georgia is actually, you know, the buck must stop at the president. It's not just the Georgia's for what's about to go wrong. Yeah. White House. Well, Ryan, I very much appreciate that question. Um, and, uh, you know, imagine what it would be like if we had a real president. How would we legislate a real plan to try to get out of the public health crisis and to reopen America? It would be pretty much the opposite of everything that he's done. Um, up until now, we've pitted the states against each other in this brutal competition for ventilators for patients, gowns and masks and other equipment for the doctors, testing kits, Everybody's on their own, Jack. And people are out on uh, the open market. There are thieves. There are con men. Uh, it is crazy what's going on out there. And then the federal government, after pitting the states into this brutal competition, which basically takes us back to the Articles of Confederation, which governed between the American Revolution and the writing of the Constitution, where every state kind of had its own law, its own trade policy, everybody was fighting. Um, the, it, the, not only does, does he take us back to that, then he uses the power of the federal government and FEMA to go and seize materials from the states when they're able to get a shipment in, then they seize it for their own purposes. Why do they want it if they're not taking responsibility for getting to the states? It's so President Trump can act with favoritism towards some Republican governor or mayor or senator who calls them up and says, hey, can we get this? just assuming the president would have access to some, yeah, he's stealing it from states so he can give it away. Um, I mean, don't, don't, for, don't forget, today he announced he was sending ventilators to Russia. So, so that's well, another, it's another way he's using that. Well, it's only fitting because uh, Russia sent him political ventilators his entire life. And uh, <laughs> they sent him money his entire life. So look, the, the opposite of that is you take federalism seriously and you say, well, what should the role of the federal government be? Well, the federal government should take responsibility for coordinating procurement of all this stuff. That makes sense? We've did this, think back to the, um, the war uh, production board in World War II. We didn't say every state go and produce their own stuff. So we call for a health equipment production board, which would uh, mobilize industry in America to produce the masks and the gowns and the gloves and the ventilators and the testing kits that we need. It would be backed up by a scientific advisory panel, 
drawn from the CDC and the NIH and Defense Logistics Agency and on and on, the, the, all of the top scientific units to say, well, what's working and what's not working? I mean, it, it, you know, the quackery, which Donald Trump tries to sell the American people, has confused everybody about what's going on out there. You know, it's just this constant barrage of propaganda and disinformation. So then what we say is, okay, the Secretary of Health and Human Services is open for business for the states to petition for reopening, to apply for reopening. Does that mean you've got to get um, the okay from the HHS to reopen? No, you could just go on your own way, but then you're not going to get any money from us to do it. If you want the federal government to pay for your reopening, you got to show two things. One, that your hospitals can meet the demand. Two, that you've got the virus on the run, the curve is going down. And what that means is that the transmission rate is below one. Each person who's got the virus is transmitting it to no more than one person, to 0.7 or 0.3, hopefully to nobody. But we've been above one. You know, New York was up around 1.9 or 2 or 2.1. They've been able to bring it down. But now you go out to South Dakota or Nebraska or the rural areas where it's out of control now, it's way above that. So bring it down and then bring us a plan. And the plan is based on mass testing, which the federal government will pay for, and then vigilant contact tracing to follow up. We got 30 million unemployed people in America right now, newly unemployed, put them to work. Let's have them be contact tracers. That's work from home on your telephone where you interview the person who's got the disease and you say, let's go day by day and try to figure out everybody you've been in contact with for the last two weeks and give me their email or their phone number if you got it. And I'm going to follow up with them and figure out who they've been in touch with and we'll move to quarantine or we'll move to get them a test, whatever it might be. That's how you get the virus on the run. You got to act like it's a human enemy, you know, and you go after it. That's the, the governments that have succeeded have taken that aggressive approach. And the president has this lethal passivity and indifference and confusion and ignorance. We know how to do this thing, but the federal government has got to back up the states and saying, we're going to help you go after the virus and institute the public health protocols you need to win. But what's happening now, this helter-skelter chaos is a recipe for disaster and catastrophe. It is a recipe for spreading the disease throughout the whole population. Then it's going to be too late, and we're just going to have to sit back and hope for herd immunity, and we're going to lose, you know, we could lose more than a million people. We could lose two million people based on, on the recklessness of the administration. Okay. Um, I know, Ed, you've got about four or five minutes before you've got to go write your column. Do you want to follow up with a question for uh, Representative Raskin? Um, so you've got um, a campaign that you're all going to be getting behind, um, uh, um, Joe Biden. Um, he's obviously trapped in his uh, home in Wilmington. Um, uh, no roadmap for the running a virtual campaign, just no, no, no parallels here to draw upon. Um, there is a debate, a very conventional debate, though, going on about what kind of economic message the Biden campaign should be framing. And there are those who are sort of encouraging the let's return to normal, which is Biden's instincts. Um, and there are those who are saying, no, this is, this is, this is much more of an FDR moment. This is a bold, persistent experimentation moment. We need to use this crisis as an opportunity to provide Americans with the economic security that, um, that they're so lacking. Right. 
in in this uh, pandemic. What which side do you come down on? How should Biden's campaign frame itself? Well, I, I don't think there's any choice. I mean, the, the GOP um, set out a year ago to run against socialism. Um, they are the biggest socialists in the country now. They're socialists for Wall Street. They're socialists for the cruise industry. They're socialists for the hotel industry. They're socialists for the airline industry. Um, and, um, you know, we can draw on the best traditions of progressive liberalism in America to fight for an investment in the 99%, not the 1% that the Senate and Mitch McConnell, Darth Vader, the Grim Reaper are fighting for. And it's very clear where the battle lines are drawn now between the two sides. So, um, I, I mean, I don't even think that that's a question anymore. We need a massive investment in the social, economic, and human infrastructure of America. And, uh, you know, you're not going to hear too many Republicans running against socialism in a world war, which is, you know, by, by that, of course, they mean government spending. They already gave a trillion and a half dollars away with their stupid tax bill to the wealthiest people in the country. And now, you know, the, the, they, they basically understand that the vast majority of the people in America have turned against Trump and Trumpism. They're on the run. And it's, it's a complete money-making operation. It was from Donald Trump from day one. They've been violating the Monuments Clause from day one. They did it as recently as this week when uh, they uh, applied for money from the UK, from the British government to go directly to Trump's business. Um, but now it's just a money-making, it's just it's a, it's a grab bag money-making moment for the whole Republican Party. They want, they're going to try to pack as many judges in as they can get to try to defeat progressive legislation from the bench. And then they're all going to try to make out like bandits stealing whatever they can from the government. I really think that that's what the GOP program is. So you think Trump, uh, you think Biden should go more radical? I, in the sense of getting to the root of the problem, which is that our government um, has been deracinated. It's been hijacked by um, a small minority of the country um, you, with, for the purposes of uh, enriching the wealthiest people and the big corporations. And so we got to represent everybody else. We got to win our democracy back. Thank you. So, so let's go in the, and Ed, I know you've got to drop up, but in, in the next and the remaining uh, 15 minutes or so that we've got, uh, let me switch it up a little bit and go and ask for a comment from, I'll go and ask for one from Kavita and one from Ryan, but then get the, the reactions from, from uh, Representative Raskin to the comments. And so Kavita, let me start with you. And I, you, you may want to pick up on something that, that, that the congressman said, but um, but I, one of the things that he said that struck a chord with me, maybe it's just because I just wrote this column for the Daily Beast today about the president launching his war on statistics um, it, because he wants to minimize and he wants to distract, is that it's not 1.3 million people who have this disease. Um, uh, even Scott Gottlieb, who worked for the president, who was on TV earlier today, pointed out that it's between 10 and 15 times that. We just don't know because of the, because of the polling, I mean, because of the testing, the absence of testing. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we had a conversation with Lori Garrett last week, and she was talking about tens of thousands of more deaths than we've recorded. So, you know, the, it's not just that the president is 
reacting inappropriately to the data that there is. It's that he's reacting inappropriately to a problem that's much, much bigger than the one described by that data. And I'm just wondering what your reaction is to that. Oh, absolutely. In fact, when data started to emerge from China, and, and I've, I've had the pleasure of working with Scott professionally, and so I, he and I were talking back then, this is early January, and, and I just said, there is no universe where a virus that's this infectious is not going to cause some ripple effect on our coast. And I had a hard time believing, you know, when it was Kirkland, Washington, and we said that that was the place of the initial, quote, outbreak Everybody who knows public health, including Lori, kind of said that's not possible that it's been that long. And sure enough, now we're finding out that because we didn't have testing, that we're doing autopsies and we found out that potentially it was early January, maybe even December, that there might have been cases. And so not only is there kind of a war against data and facts, there's actually, if you think about it, there's actually been a suppression of the infrastructure to get to the bottom of that data and facts. And despite the representatives' efforts, despite Nancy Pelosi's efforts, Chuck Schumer, et cetera, unfortunately, you've got an executive branch that is completely like sidelined through Mike Pence and a handful of people with no credentials and no health to speak of backgrounds who are now kind of creating an environment. And by the way, just to get a little more conspiratorial, it extends into FEMA's handling of the one treatment that's not even a a, a true treatment, a silver bullet, but it's the one treatment we have that shows that you can decrease length of stay and maybe decrease mortality. And we've just found out in the last 24 hours that only 25 hospitals in the country have gotten doses of remdesivir. So this is not just a wholesale assault on science and facts. It's systematic and it goes, and, and I would just say to not to, you know, scare every listener, I am going to, I'm going to, I'm hoping the representative is already thinking about, you know, we're going to have a vaccine, hopefully in the next 12 to 24 months. How are we going to make sure Americans get access to this vaccine? How, yes. how are we going to make sure that the exact same story does not replay itself? Um, the, that is it. Thank you, Kavita, for pointing that out because that's the importance of us struggling to get it right now. I mean, I can't tell you the number of members have said to me, it's too late, like for the Reopen America Act. You're trying to create a, a structure that is coming too late because the president has already ruined everything. We've got to put it in place to get ready for the comeback of the virus in the fall, where it could come back even more ferociously than we've seen it now. And we got to get ready with the supply chains to distribute the vaccine, as you're saying. We got to rebuild the government. They've totally hollowed out the government, except for the parts of it that can make them money, that they use for purposes of, you know, handing out contracts and goodies to their friends. So, um, look, we got to figure a, a way to get out of this chaos that we're in. Um, I, I really believe that the president, that his people have made the judgment that they're, that it's so out of control that they're best off just denying it and uh, sacrificing that part of the population that we're going to lose and then running a propaganda campaign to try to convince everybody that everything's fine and it's, and you know, we're, we're back in business. Um, so anyway, th that's why I, I think it's important that we lay out our plan now uh, we do what we can to reconstruct 
those supply chains. We were talking about how Jared Kushner had substituted this kindergarten of his little VIP interns um, for a, a real governmental operation. And it's just scary what they've done to the government of the United States that would be an instrument of the common good. I mean, every it's, you know, the way they talk about they want to strangle the government uh, to put it so they can fit it into a bathtub. That's the government that we need. That's the government that actually serves the people. The government they want is the one that um, they use for purposes of just looting billions of dollars from the American people and um, servicing all of their friends in, you know, the, the wealthiest quarters of America. So I think that the presidential election um, has got to be framed as a populist enterprise. Um, and to go back to Ryan's question, I mean, um, you know, Joe Biden to me is just at this point, um, he's the person at the top of this movement to take back the American government. Um, and it could have been anybody that we nominated and he was the one that we settled on, but everybody's got to get behind, uh, the Democrat, the democratic nominee. And I'm assuming it's him. Uh, my candidate was Elizabeth Warren, but, uh, I've got no sour grapes about it. Uh, I'm going to fight for Biden and I'm going to fight for, um, us to take the government back. We've got no choice. It's a matter of life and death. And by the way, for people who do live in DC, it's really a matter of life and death for them because uh, DC just got cheated out of $750 million in funding that it should have had just because the Republicans could do it. And they figured out, oh, let's stick it to a democratic jurisdiction. All of their rhetoric is about how this is a blue state disease and this is a blue state problem. Um, I mean, it's an absolutely deranged and antisocial way of thinking about a plague that Trump has done everything in his power to exacerbate and promote. Yeah, there's a saying that, the you know, an institution is just the length and shadow of a man. And in this particular case, you, you get a sociopathic institution is the length and shadow of a sociopath. Um, you know, it, it brings us to another thing, Ryan, and you and I for many months would talk um, uh, about the, the uh, impeachment hearings. We'd often talk about uh, things that, that Representative Raskin was doing. Um, and, and yet it seems that some of the worst abuses of this administration are actually taking place now. Whether you have the whistleblower report of Dr. Bright or you have, as, as, as Representative Raskin just referred uh, to, the, the actions of the sort of cronyism uh, overseen by Jared Kushner, uh, or these decisions, um, which, you know, people like Larry Tribe have pointed out are, you know, unconstitutional, to withhold aid from places that need aid for purely political reasons. And I'm just wondering, you know, First, Ryan, and and then the reaction from the representative. Don't you think this calls for some investigation? Maybe not during you know the term of Trump, because we know that Barr will quash it. But at some point, somebody's got to be held accountable because in, inside or around and among this crisis, we have a lot of scandal. Yeah, um, <laughs> I mean, it is amazing that it's like just in the last seven days, it's another two, 
as you were describing, David, the other two whistleblowers, essentially, so Dr. Bright, and then also the news of the Jared Kushner volunteer team from private uh, firms is a is a whistleblower. It seems like he's one of the he or she is one of the volunteers who came forward to the Washington Post to reveal it. Um, or today, uh, the administration apparently shelves the CDC guidelines for um, states and localities to understand how to reopen their public uh, places and says to the CDC uh, health officials, this will never see the light of day. And then today a federal official leaked the entire document, uh, I think to the Associated Press. Um, so there, that's part of it. And then just to, like you said, David, to dovetail it back to the impeachment, I still recall it was one of the most vivid um, moments to me in the expert witnesses giving testimony to, I think it was the House Judiciary Committee at the time, and one of the examples given was this extreme case. And in fact, I tweeted it out as a video because it was so, um, it encapsulated what was going on with the Ukraine allegations, which is, could you imagine if, if you agree to this, then you can imagine a president would actually deny disaster relief to a governor unless the governor did something political for their benefit. And we're living through it. And so the, the new normal is like as outrageous as you think it can be, it's actually going to be two, three times worse. And so the question you raise uh, is the, like, what happened? Is there going to be a reckoning? I mean, I think we also are trying to focus on how to get us to the point where there can even be a platform for a reckoning. But I do wonder about many of the officials that are going along with this. That's what the whistleblowers are also revealing. There's so many people that um, have lost their moral compass and in some sense have lost their legal compass because there are potential Hatch Act violations that are happening here in terms of use of uh, public office for political benefits and political donors and things like that. So I think that maybe hopefully some of them wake up to the whistleblowers are going to be out there and that they start to look behind the veil of might be a new, uh, you know, a real attorney general in, in town um, come January 21st who's independent and will actually try to do something. I think maybe something that's also learned uh, based on the Obama administration's experience is it is sometimes time to look back. If you don't look back and find accountability, then we do have these repeat offenders coming back into public uh, office and things like that that start recurring. And otherwise, how we learn from this, which is one of the most egregious cases of violating the public trust and the you know, public health in the midst of a pandemic. That we're not, the, the most extreme case one can also imagine. So, yeah. Congressman, what do you think? I mean, well, you know, the, um, some of the Republicans have been saying um, about our new committee to do oversight on the coronavirus response. This is impeachment 2.0. And I got appointed to this committee. And my reaction was, hey, 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 impeachment is way too good for Donald Trump and the Republican Party at this point. We need to impeach the entire party. We need an electoral landslide, unlike anything anybody's ever seen in American history, to repudiate the ignorance and the lethal incompetence and the malice um, of the people who've taken over the government for purposes of plunder. Um, you know, we tried impeachment, which was uh, an exercise of the rule of law. We tried to hold them to the rule of law in the GOP, um, with the uh, quasi-honorable exception of Mitt Romney, who voted for conviction on one of two counts. Um, but the GOP basically said, no, um, they're going to 
They don't care. I mean, can you imagine what they would have said if Barack Obama had done any of those things? Can you imagine what they'd be saying right now if Barack Obama were president and we had lost 72,000 people and 1.3 million people were infected and we had um, the, the greatest unemployment since the Depression and 30 million people? Can you imagine what they'd be saying? Um, so uh, th- these people have totally lost their way. Um, morally, politically, and intellectually. And we just need to mobilize the citizenry of the country in a real political revolution against the GOP. And then we need to defend the election at every turn, from every form of voter suppression to manipulation of the electoral college to um, you know denial of the right to vote to Wisconsin-style um, games played um, based on the, um, the virus, you know, um, that's, that, that's our hope for redeeming democracy. And I agree it's going to be important for the truth to come out about everything that they've done. But, you know, we've been waiting for three years for that one scandal that will just push everybody over the edge and then they'll abandon them. I tell you, they double down every single time. They've made a career out of defending people who abuse their power. Um, and, you know, uh, there have been elements of, uh, of Jonestown in this whole thing. And I thought, you know, maybe the day when Trump was advocating that people take Clorox or ingest disinfectant, maybe at that point, because that's essentially what Jim Jones did. You know, everybody drank the Kool-Aid. And even then, the, the propaganda apparatus on the right wing set in immediately to excuse what the president had said. Now, they did end up canceling the press conferences, not because they wanted to apologize and repent for their role in it, but just because they knew that the president's behavior is so disgraceful and abominable that there would be no way to justify it. We got to wrap up. I want to take two minutes, one from Kavita and then one from the congressman, and one point that we haven't gotten to here, but I think is really important in all of this. Kavita, you work with Brookings. Brookings come out with a study that showed that one in five mothers of young children in America uh, fears that their their child's going to go hungry during this crisis. I grew up in a country that said, we're the richest country in the world. And we are on the verge of a massive hunger crisis in the United States. And we talk about all these other things. I was wondering if you might just say something briefly on that and then we'll get a quick reaction and then we'll wrap up. Yeah, thank, thank you for bringing it up. A colleague at Brookings, important work that was done, but nothing that surprises any of us. In healthcare, we often see this intersection of poverty and hunger, things that we call social determinants of health, not lack of transportation. I think it's abominable, it's unconscionable. And I personally, even with all the resources that are being given rightfully so to healthcare workers, I want there to be desperately, like the congressman has been kind of advocating for, I want there to be a third way where we impl- We really need to just put as much money into Americans' hands as possible in a healthy way and acknowledge that we have failed Americans. As Democrats, as Republicans, we have failed people when we have children who are hungry in this country. And for some reason, as Americans, it's okay to allow hotel rooms to go empty and homeless to sleep on the streets. And it's okay to throw food away when we have children who are hungry. And I, I do hope that Congressman is right. I hope we don't, we, 
I hope our election is a landslide and it's a referendum and a signal to Democrats alike that things have to change, that we can't go on with. There's nothing about the normal that exists anymore and we have to put that as a priority. And even Democrats such as myself, extreme liberals have to acknowledge our failures in allowing for this to happen. You know, Congressman, as, as, just before your final response on that, I've spent my whole career in foreign policy and national security um, in the government and elsewhere and as the editor of Foreign Policy Magazine. And every time there was a problem anywhere in the world, somebody would be quick to write an article saying, we need a Marshall Plan for this place. And now I look at the United States with 33 million people unemployed and hunger and disease and the worst economic crisis in 100 years. And I find that we're at a point where we need a Marshall Plan for the United States. Well, we're right you are. And the Marshall Plan is all about an investment in the social infrastructure, but also significantly in the political infrastructure. So you're rebuilding democratic institutions and our democratic institutions have come under attack. Congress has come under attack. The courts have come, come under attack. The press, the free press has come under attack. You name it, all of it has been facing this terrible um, assault from the Trump administration. And I, um, so I agree strongly with you and with Kavita, we need um, a thoroughgoing renewal of our democratic institutions. This is why, you know, I'm fighting for the Reopen America Act. It's not like the New Deal because we don't have a Roosevelt in office. It's much more like reconstruction where you've got a president who's running against the tide of history, but we've got to go ahead and do it anyway and fight the president to make the executive branch begin to implement the things that we need to get done. Um, food insecurity is a profound problem right now. And, um, you know, you could have foreseen it with Trump. I mean, we, you know, we've got now a mass plague, we've got mass unemployment, we've got mass poverty spreading, and now mass food insecurity. He's fundamentally changed the character of life in the United States. Uh, you, you saw the, uh, the Irish columnist, O'Toole, who said, you know, I've felt many emotions towards America in my life, love and hate and jealousy and envy and pride and everything, but I never felt pity before. And now he said, I feel pity. I feel sympathy for the people of America. We do need a Marshall Plan. What we need is a reconstruction of all of our institutions and our programs to reinvest in our society and to stop the ripoff of America that began with this con man when he took office back in 2017. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, sometimes you, you, one sees the debate in the Congress or sees the debate in the public arena and wishes one could step right in and add one's two cents. And whenever Congressman Raskin's involved in the debate, I don't feel it's necessary because he's saying what's on my mind and he's saying it better than how I could. So very glad that you could join us, Congressman, uh, uh, as ever. Uh, very glad you could join us. Kavita, hope you'll come back soon. Uh, and Ryan, hope you're here every week because you're supposed to be here every week. And uh, thank you, Ed, and we'll look forward to having you back every week, too, because you're back every week. Uh, and to all of you who are listening, uh, join us here at the DSR Network for uh, discussions like this throughout the crisis and beyond. And if you like the discussions and you want to help us, go to the DSRnetwork.com and uh, sign up, become a member, help us to do what we're doing. Thank you very much. 
Uh, Thank you, David. Thank you. Keep up the great work, man. Thank you. Stay healthy, everybody.